This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We return to the program today is Stephen J. Harper, an attorney and adjunct professor at Northwestern University Law School. He's the author of several books, including Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster Story, and The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis. He's been a regular columnist for Bill Moyers' site, Moyers on Democracy, which is where we encountered his good work, and also on Dan Rather's News and Guts, also The American Lawyer. This, I think, will be his fourth visit to us on this program. We've had interesting discussions on uh, Donald Trump and his mismanaging the COVID crisis, Donald Trump and Russiagate, and Donald Trump and the future of democracy, which I guess is what we're going to return to today, Donald Trump and the future of democracy. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Doug. You kind of took a break from from, from posting things, but uh, got back on board recently. He burned me out. I, I, just, <laughs> I, need to, I need to clear my head, so... Once the election was over and after a couple months into the Biden administration, I just, just decided to, to take a breather. Well, we left off with our listeners as like, well, it's a new era. Let's see where this goes. We'll give it some time. And now some time has elapsed. So it's, uh, it, 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 we should take a look. Do, before we talk about Trump and, and, the Demo- and our democratic process here, um, I do want to cite a little piece I've had from The Week magazine which was referring to how at the end of last year, the House Select Committee investigating the pandemic concluded in a report that there was staggering acts of political interference to boost Trump's re-election campaign, targeting the CDC, etc. This is something we talked about before, and, and we left off with like, well, something should be done about this, but doesn't appear like anything will be. You know, that's the sad part about all of this stuff. You know, it's, it's uh, one of the great lines in, in going all the way back to Robert Mueller's report. One of the, one of the great lines in there was his, his uh, statement of the truism. At least we always thought it was a truism. No one is above the law. But at every turn, uh, it does seem that uh, Trump has been able to keep himself above the law. The pandemic was no exception. I mean, there had been different estimates about the, the, the tens or hundreds of thousands of people uh, who got sick and, and died um, because of the malfeasance and, and, and the way in which the you know science was completely displaced by politics in an effort to try to save Trump's losing campaign, um, and yet w- w- you know it seems like there's no accountability for anything. No, right. it's discouraging. It's really discouraging. And I tell you, as a lawyer, it's particularly discouraging to me because what Trump has figured out, and you now see it, it's it's metastasized to 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 all of his allies is they can essentially wait out the system. They can, they can rope-a-dope uh, everything until uh, enough time passes that people either lose interest or it just takes too long and nobody cares or people give up. And, and um, it's, it's, you, realize, you, you don't realize until you see something like this the extent to which the entire justice system is really dependent upon the, the I don't want to say decency, but at least the willingness of people to respect it enough to know that it, it can have teeth, and I'm, I'm a, I fear that we're losing that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just in keeping with that that article, Deborah Burks is now looking back on it. Said that had her pleas on masks and vaccine been heeded by all 50 states, they would have reduced the fatalities to COVID by up to 40 percent. I think that's probably a conservative estimate. But if you accept 40 percent as the number, then you're talking about an excess death total with 900,000 cases now of like oh, 900,000 deaths, of like approaching 400,000. 
Right. There's a, a grandparent or a child or a, a, a parent or a sister who's, you know, not around today because of that. You know, and, and, and that's the other problem, you know. The, there's a sense in which people have lost track of, uh, I guess it's really, I always thought it was a part of the social contract that, you know, you, you're not in it just for yourself. Um, you, you, you do have an accountability, or at least you should have an accountability, to the extent to which your actions impact others, particularly in a negative way. Um, but I guess, you know, starting with Neil Gorsuch and his unwillingness to wear a mask at the Supreme Court hearings, you know, where Justice Sotomayor is at risk because of her diabetes, she gets to listen and participate from her chambers, and he sits out there maskless. It's really discouraging. Certainly is. Let's talk about your stuff. You have some, some material out now titled, Now Every Day is January 6th, and how it is that Donald Trump is targeting the vote counters looking forward to 2024. You've got some good things in here about the various states, what he's doing in the various states, and, and there's a lot to look at. Let, can, we, can we talk about those? Sure, anytime you want. Any, any, anything you want. I'm always happy to do it. They, you know, the, the framework is, the, is, is sort of the, 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 the larger, sort of the over, overarching point, which is uh, what I call the enemy within. Um, and it's, it's sort of the, three, the three-step process uh, by which democracy is really, really under attack, although... I was just reading before we started this conversation about the latest CNN poll that says that the percentage of of, of people who think that democracy is is under some kind of assault has actually been declining uh, over oh, the last no. several months. So you just can't get anybody's attention on this stuff until it's too late. The three steps, right? One step is you keep the opposition's uh, likely voters from voting, and we're seeing that in voter suppression efforts in. Republican-controlled legislatures and governorships across the country. Uh, step two, which is the, the the one that you alluded to, if the opposing candidates win, wins the popular vote, then disregard it. And that really goes to the question of putting people in who, who are your loyalists, if you're Trump, in, in the office of Secretary of State, who people kind of underestimate until it's election time, uh, the importance uh, of those people. Uh, but they're the ones who actually certify the final vote count that then becomes the basis for determining who the president of the United States is through the electoral process. And Trump's going at that. He's going at that with a vengeance in, in uh, swing states. And then the third step is the is the fallback plan, which is if all else fails, you know, just demand audits and keep keep saying the result was fixed. But you can see what he's doing, as you say, in the uh, you know going after the vote counters. You see it in the in the really in the three. There are three states where he's made endorsements for state, the state office of Secretary of State. Now, I, I haven't done any research on this, but I think you have to go back a long time to find, to find some point in time when a former president of the United States uh, or president of the United States endorsed somebody for a state office of Secretary of State. So you say to yourself, well, why is he doing that? And he said, well, the answer is he's doing it in Georgia because we all know what he tried to do with Brad Raffensperger, you know, try to pressure him. Find me 11,780 votes that I need to, to flip the, the election my way in Georgia. Um, so instead of that, he's he's got this guy, Jody Heiss, uh, who, he's, uh, who he's endorsed, who to this day believes that Trump won the election in Georgia. Um, and yeah. was in attendance. He was in attendance at the at the June 6th, January sixth insurrection for crying out loud. You go to Michigan. He's got you know a, a woman there named Christina Caramo, who he's endorsed. I, I don't even know to where, where to begin with her. You have some really kind of amazing details in your piece. You need to cite these. 
And then there's another one that I that I stumbled into that I, that isn't even in that piece, I don't think, uh, which was that uh, it was in September or October in Las Vegas. She was she spoke at the QAnon conference. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so you're talking pretty serious stuff. But the day after the January 6th insurrection, uh, she had a podcast where she said that she believed that it was uh, completely the work of Antifa posing as Trump supporters. <laughs> She's a big, big promoter of the big lie, has called for the removal of Republican, Republican traitors, she calls them, uh, from office. Um, what's her background, you might ask? Well, she has a master's degree in Christian apologetics, which is the study of defense of Christianity against objections from um, uh, Biola or Biola University, which is the evangelical university in Southern California. In November of 2020, she said the Democratic Party had been totally taken over by a satanic agenda. Well, that's a concern. <laughs> she calls public schools government indoctrination camps that expose children to uh, unbridled uh, wickedness. Trump has endorsed her, and she is, thanks to his endorsement, the top fundraiser in Michigan for the, sp the Republican nomination for Secretary of State in 2022. And then in Arizona, there's another another guy who attended the June 6th uh, insurrection. Trump, Trump endorsed him, Mark Fincham. He spoke at the uh, Stop the Steal pre-rally on January 5th and then showed up the next day close to the Capitol building. And he's uh, he also uh, was at the, uh, the QAnon convention. So there's a theme, right? Yes. That runs through this. And I say this sort of half-jokingly, but People really do not understand, and I and, and I, I would count myself among this. I don't mean to be disparaging. I would count myself among the group prior to having looked into this a little bit more closely. But 2024 is important. 2020, the elections that happened in 2022 may be even more important in determining which way we go from what is really an inflection point of democracy, because if some of these people win in these local state offices that are up, and it's going to be an off-year election and people don't like to turn out for off-year elections. But if some of these people win in key states in 2022, where what's up are Secretary of State, uh, Governor, Attorney General, these are the people that are going to really set the table for what happens in 2024. And there are a lot of positions like that. Uh, 27 states are going to hold elections for Secretary of State in 2022. Well, we actually, this is pretty much as we would have expected based on our last conversation almost a year ago on this topic, that this was the plan all along, and now it's being put into place. But you mentioned also in the piece the fact that Trump really is taking it a step further. As much as Brad Raffensperger was, was a Trump guy, he just couldn't quite stomach the manufacturing of 12,000 phony votes. And, and you, as you point in the piece out, he says, well, he's, he might vote for Trump again. Yeah, at the end of the day, Raffensperger is a Republican. He's running for re-election. And at the end of the day, even though Trump has endorsed one of his opponents, he can't risk alienating completely the Trump base, even though he's, I, think he's, I think he's straddling the boast of, and maybe living in the worst of both worlds. Even beyond that, even, even though he's a Trump guy really all, all the way, just not to Trump's satisfaction, the new voting law removes him as the, the chair of the five-person state election board. That's going to instead go to a GOP-controlled general assembly and the Secretary of State isn't even a voting member. In, in Georgia, yeah, that's right. The other thing, and this is going to be the subject of a, of a piece I'm, I'm working on now that will show up probably sometime next week. The other thing that's happening in Georgia is, is that that same law empowers that uh, state election board that's been now reconstituted 
uh, with a Republican majority and, and no Raffensperger even a voting member. The Secretary of State isn't even a voting member. Uh, they also have new powers to investigate uh, and and uh, suspend if they want, if they find a reason to do it and remove uh, local county election officials. And uh, one of the things I'm going to discuss in the in one of my forthcoming in my forthcoming uh, piece on this is that Joe Biden won uh, Georgia by 12,000 votes because he carried the Atlanta area in large part because he carried the Atlanta the four Atlanta area counties by a combined total of 600,000 votes. Right. One of those counties is Fulton County, and one of the investigations that has begun by the newly constituted uh, election board, Republican-dominated election board in Georgia, is an investigation of Fulton County managerial practices, which, as the the Associated Press noted, uh, could be a prelude to a takeover of the of the administration of, of voting in that county. Wow. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you get too far into this stuff, you, you, you don't find much to feel reassured about is, is kind of the, the bad news. The good news is we still are, at least to this point, in control of our, of our own fate. You know, I'm kind of reminded once in a while of the, uh, I'm sure you've heard it, the, the story about the frog in the pot of boiling water. Right. Um, and, you know, the, for, for your listeners who aren't familiar with it, the popular story is that if you put a put a frog in in water and then and then slowly bring it to a boil, the frog won't even realize uh, until it's too late that he can't jump out. The, the analogy would be so that's sort of what's happening to all of us. Well, the truth is we're not even as smart as the frog because the truth about that scientific scientific phenomenon is that as the water gets hotter. The frog, the frog has enough sense to jump out <laughs> the, before it's too late. I think we're at a critical inflection point in democracy over the next, um, you know, 12 to 18 months, culminating in 2024, of course. But I think there's a there's a big table setting process that, that we're going to know a lot about uh, based on what happens in November of 2022. Well, I do hope in the next week or two we will bring back uh, Greg Palast, who was knee deep in the goings on down in Georgia working with Stacey Abrams uh, against Brad Raffensperger, and I'm sure he'll have some things to say about all that. Going a step further, uh, before you even have a vote count, there's uh, there's many people that think that uh, Mr. DeJoy was put in charge of the post office to make a lot of uh, a lot of votes disappear. And if, if you look at the polling data before the election and the actual vote count, Biden won pretty substantially, but the, the polls showed he was going to win by several million more votes than than he did, and people still wonder whether DeJoy managed to engineer a lot of votes dis, uh, just disappearing out of the mails. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, and it could be that no one will ever know the answer to that question. I do believe that that one of the well, it was one of the one of the major concerns prior to the election is that given what was happening in terms of the disruptions to the U.S. mail service, and I don't know if people even remember it. But, you know, mail was getting delayed big time yes. because of various cuts that he was making yes. for budgetary reasons, supposedly. And, um, and, the, and the concern was, you know, were the ballots going to get there on time? Did, were things going to arrive on time? Um, I don't know that there has ever been any kind of analysis of whether they did or didn't. From my point of view, this, the sooner that uh, Biden's board of governors can be put in place and take Louis DeJoy out of this equation, the, the safer the safer our democracy will be, frankly. Um, 
And uh, yeah. that's because that's not because I know anything in particular about DeJoy, other than that he was never qualified to hold the job, uh, and that Trump loved him. And, and that's enough for me to conclude, uh, you know, just watching mm-hmm. watching the track record of what he did to sort of undermine the Postal Service is enough to convince me that he should really not be in that job. Well, your other article talked about every day in, in Arizona being January 6th. I mean, in Georgia, uh, there seemed to have been a big effort to make sure that you weren't voting while black. But in Arizona, they just, uh, the restrictions they're putting in place, uh, you estimate, might take 100,000 eligible voters from, from the early voting mailing list. They have new restrictions proposed in Arizona that are going to like include new voter ID requirements, limitations on the use of drive-up voting and ballot drop boxes, and requiring all voting to be in person on election day. All, this is just all, clearly all an effort to restrict less conservative voters uh, from voting. Yeah. And in Arizona, the target there, I think, is Native Americans. One of the sponsors defending... Uh, some of the proposals that have not yet been adopted, thank goodness, um, I don't know if they will, said, you know, we need to get back to the to 1958-style voting. You know, well, that's great. Yeah, let's get back to the good old days with, with uh, literacy tests. Why not? Uh, which is what was going on in 1958. Um, and in that time, you know, Arizona had a huge and still does have a very large Native American population, um, and about half of the Navajo voting age population couldn't pass a literacy test back in 1958. The only good news I can say in Arizona that I've seen recently is that about a week after my article came out on what was going on down there, the the House leader, uh, who is not up for re-election, I guess he's retiring or maybe he's term limited or maybe both, who actually was a Trump supporter, said that they were not. He was not going to advance the proposal that would have empowered the state legislature to accept or reject the results of an election. Once you empower legislature to do that, it's all over. There is a certain wriggle room in our own constitution for for how this could be done. We have since, I guess, the middle of the 19th century, state by state, allowed the electors of that state to go based on the popular vote. But it didn't used to be that way before and doesn't strictly speaking, have to be that way. So you could send new electors based on what this legislature in the state uh, determines. Sure. The other holes, and I'm, this, is a, this is another piece I'm working on, a different piece, is part of what uh, the Trump team was trying to do with the slate of fake electors in 2020. Yeah, let's talk about that. Sure. Again, for the benefit of, of, of listeners who probably shouldn't for their own mental health while this stuff uh, as closely as I do. Basically, the way it works when you vote, you're, you're, you think you're voting for president, and you really are, but you're actually voting for people who are going to vote for your candidate in the Electoral College. So each state, theoretically, you have a popular vote outcome. There are electors who are assigned based on the candidate they support, and um, in the Electoral College, you need uh, 270 electoral votes. Again, that's based on various state calculations in order to win the election. Right. Well, the, the, the fake elector scheme was pretty sophisticated in a sense, and it was very well orchestrated. The idea was that uh, a group of, in the, in the key states, in states, six states that would add up to 79 electoral votes that would swing the, the election to Trump and away from Biden, 
Trump supporters would get together in the state capitals, as, as the electors are required to do, and they would essentially affirm that they, that is, these Trump supporters getting together, would fill out these certificates that said, hey, we're the, we're the ones. We are the duly constituted electors. And they did it. They, they sent those certifications to Washington, D.C. That's what the National Archives produced recently. Right. For, for, the, for the House committee. Yeah. The game there was to have those, that slate of electors be in competition with the real electors when it came around to time to figure out on January 6th which electors should count for purposes of confirming Joe Biden's election. Um, and the idea, I think the ultimate idea was to buy time, so to keep pushing things out, pushing things out, pushing things out, so there would be no confirmation on January 6th of Biden's win. Chaos would continue to envelop the country. We'd be in disarray. And then what? And the answer, the answer to that is who knows, although there was a draft executive order floating around. Well, we know Trump didn't sign it, but it would have authorized the Department of Defense to seize all voting machines and would have, it would essentially put Trump in a position to stay in office beyond the constitutionally determined date of January 20th, which is the inauguration day. We might want to point out, too, that if they'd had this thing choreographed a little more closely, well, we don't know what Mike Pence would have done. It's a very good point, because the question was, if he can't get the job done on January 6th in terms of certifying Biden, then maybe, I suppose, the theory went, there would be such continuing pressure on Pence that over a period of you know several days or a week past January 6th, he would eventually fold and do what he cannot do under the U.S. Constitution, which is disaffirm or refuse to acknowledge electoral votes from the various key states uh, that Biden had won, because there would now be sufficient doubt created through whatever about whether those popular votes were legitimate. But then the Constitution is what the Supreme Court says it is. And if someone, Mike Pence, or God forbid, in the future, if someone else is in the same position working for Donald Trump, they could say, well, actually, I do have that power. I understand that they're, they're trying to rewrite this law to make it much more explicit, to take what, what little rigor room there is in it out of it, so that and no one can say that the vice president could do that. That's right. And of course, Trump is saying, see, this proves that I could have done it because they have to change the law to make it clear that I can't. <laughs> We're all the way through the looking glass on that one. Yeah. I don't know where to begin with all these papers I want to, I want to talk to you about, but I mean, uh, in Arizona, the cyber ninjas went in there, spent all this time in Maricopa County, came up with 300 and something extra votes for Biden with that. But Trump, <laughs> Trump nevertheless, tells Steve Inskeep on, on NPR, if you look at the numbers, look at the findings in Arizona, this is a corrupt election. Findings are devastating in Arizona, contrary to all reality, as is, as is his want. Right. That's right. Yep. Don't let the facts get away of Trump's narrative. <laughs> Inskeep pressed him on the thing, and, and he, went, he launched into a, a monologue, you know, about his endorsed candidate for governor, Kerry Lake, who he wants because in Arizona, Doug Ducey uh, went ahead and signed the state's official certification of Biden's victory. And so even though they're both Republicans, Trump wants the guy who crossed him out, and he wants Kerry Lake in. You know, one thing that's worth mentioning for the audience and for, for both of us to, I think, reminisce about is that after watching this giant riot taking place in the Capitol, the most significant insurrection maybe in U.S. history uh, in terms of sedition against right there in the Capitol building. No sooner was that sort of brought under control than twice 
they had to decide in both Arizona and Pennsylvania about whether they were going to certify uh, the vote. Right. And 140 Republicans voted not to certify. That's right. And you're now seeing what happens to to those who crossed Trump there, too. He did a couple more endorsements uh, just recently going after other Republicans who who voted to impeach him. All you can say about it, uh, Doug, I, I guess, is, and I keep coming back to this, because you have to think about it this way in order to figure out how to deal with it. Um, you really are dealing with a cult. Uh, people don't like to say that, but but that's exactly what's going on here. And even people who've broken away, I was just reading the other uh, the, before our call about a, a guy who was talking to CNN about how you know he was a Trump supporter. He he went all over the country uh, for these uh, Stop the Steal rallies. He showed up on January 6th, and he now realizes it was a cult. He's still a Trump supporter, <laughs> but at least he realizes he was in a cult. The reason that's significant is. How do you penetrate that? How do you get to the into the mindset? I'm no expert on cults, but my rudimentary understanding is that the the key to a cult is that all members are are for the leader. Everything is for the leader, and from the leader standpoint, everything is for the leader too. <laughs> the members don't matter at all. <laughs> That's my armchair synopsis with, without any depth at all about about cult behavior. How do you get reality and truth and facts to penetrate that mindset when it's locked in to whatever it believes from the leader? I don't know, but it scares the hell out of me because, yes, it seems to me we're not having the same sorts of conversations we had in the past. Now it doesn't really matter what you say. That's right. And I don't have the answer to that. I wish I did. And the only way I've been able to, to, way to approach it, at least in the way I try to do it in my writing, is not really even to take positions, take extreme positions even, on good or bad or anything else, but simply say, and that was what, that was the approach I took with the, with various timelines that I did, you know, for the for Bill Moyers' site. Um, look, these are these are just facts, and they may be inconvenient facts for you, but these are just facts, and and then you just lay them out, and then let people draw their own conclusions. When I was arguing cases to a jury. That was essentially the way I did it. You know, you, you, can, you can say, I want you to believe this, I want you to believe this, I want you to believe this. Uh, but unless you give people some reason to believe it, they're not going to believe it. Yeah. At least I always thought that was true about human nature. So my belief was when I approached juries in, in trials would be to say, look, you don't have to believe me. Here are the facts. Make your own decision. Because ultimately, the decision that's, that a person makes when they come to it on their own, is far more powerful and far more enduring than anything that someone else is going to persuade them to do in the moment. Well, I think, unfortunately, all of that goes out the window when your audience is a member of a cult. Um, I know people are going to resist that notion. They're going to push back and say, well, look, you're, you're insulting us. You know, you're, you're, you're saying it's, uh, it's, it's, that we're members of a cult, so we somehow we're not even you know, worthy of of de- debate or discussion or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think that everyone who voted for Trump is a member of a cult. I do think that if you look at the events of, of, of his, his behavior during the presidency, uh, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's uh, the Ukraine impeachment, whether it's the second impeachment arising out of January 6th, whether it's the, the remarkable strands of seditious con- conspiracy that were running right up to uh, January 6th and beyond, 
Um, if you're not willing to look at that as, say, somebody like Mitch McConnell from time to time does and say, look, that was just wrong. Uh, this is what actually happened. You people who are saying it didn't happen are, are wrong. Um, I mean, I give Mitch credit, at least from time to time he's been able to say that. He can't always stick to it, <laughs> but, he's, but he's able to say it once in a while. Um, but I am saying there is a vast group of people uh, who are, who, whose behavior is, is cult-like. Um, because there's no other way to explain their continuing devotion to somebody who is, is absolutely has absolutely no allegiance or loyalty to them, and who has demonstrated repeatedly that he doesn't think the law applies to him. To him. He doesn't think the rules of, of behavior that apply to all of his members, for example, apply to him. He thinks the only thing that matters to him is what he wants. And you, you only have to hope that at some point there's a day of reckoning. Yes, indeed. We're speaking with Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor at Northwestern University Law School, and I think it's fair to say an expert on Donald J. Trump. We're talking about the future of the American democracy and with, with the specter of Donald Trump. And I, one thing I do want to discuss here is the fact that there's a way to legally rig elections, and, and that has very much always been part of an American tradition, going back to a man named Elbridge Jerry, who from which we get the term gerrymandering, is that depending on how you draw the lines, you can, you can put who you want in office. And currently, in the, in the wake of the 2020 census, lines are re- being redrawn all across the United States. And by a lot of people's reckoning, without even, just not even changing the vote, if you had the same vote as 2020, but had the new lines in place, the Republicans would be picking up like 10 seats in the House. Right. And a lot of people looking at it, running the numbers and saying... Loss of the Senate and House in 2020 are both very much possible. And a lot of it's going to come to do with just how, how the lines are drawn. Now, Merrick Garland is standing up to that. I guess the, Fed, the feds are, to some degree, standing up to some of these more outrageous uh, uh, redrawing. Well, he's trying. The problem is that the uh, Supreme Court has, has gutted the Voting Rights uh, Act, and there, a lot of the tools that normally would be available uh, aren't available. Um, in terms of challenging some of the more draconian steps that are that are being taken, um, and and I and and I have to say, you know, Democrats are doing it too. Oh yeah, um, it's a long tradition. Problem, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The the problem is where you wind up, is what you're winding up with is is a situation where the Congress and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but in a in a country that's essentially slightly majority, at least based on the last, last election, 50 or 55 percent, somewhere 50 percent uh, uh, Democratic, for example, or, or maybe I should say non, not Republican. But Republicans control, you know, up until the latest election, which I fear may be an aberration after we see what happens in November. It, it's not even remotely proportional relative to the two parties. Which is why you have blacks in uh, in Alabama, you know, not picking up, a, lose, essentially losing a seat because they redrew the lines. Right. Looks like the Supreme Court, at least for now, is letting that stand. Well, Garland has sued Texas, and I think, and they're raising issues in North Carolina. There's, I forget. There's several states that are being directly challenged. Yes, and we'll have to see how those all play out. The problem, of course, is you've now got a either a five to four or a six to three conservative majority at the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is where virtually all of these uh, voting-related cases eventually wind up. And people in California never seem to tire of pointing out the fact that although we're a very blue state out here on the West Coast, uh, our population 
is equal to something, I think, like 18 of the smallest states, which by and large are red rural states. So there's 36 members of the Senate compared to two California senators. Right. Which is right. Uh, quite, a, quite an obstacle. Sort of interesting, you know, some of the conservative uh, um, members of the, the Supreme Court, as well as the, you know, you know in, in the academic world and, and elsewhere and the political world, like to go back to original intent and original interpretation and originalism as it relates to the U.S. Constitution. We're living in the United States that the founders could not have possibly conceived. I just have to say, that whole idea is just nuts. I mean, right. It's not 1780, it's 2022. One of my professors in law school was, uh, was Lawrence Tribe, who's a eminent, he's retired recently, he's an eminent constitutional scholar and has been for literally decades. And uh, one of my classmates, although we were not in that class together, at least I don't remember that we were, was Chief Justice John Roberts. No. Oh. And um, and uh, I remember, I remember uh, seeing back when when Stephen Colbert had the Colbert Report before he was on the, on late night. Professor Tribe was on the program, and I think Chief Justice Roberts had been on the court for for a couple a few years. And Colbert asked. Professor Tribe, you know, I understand that uh, uh, Justice Roberts took constitutional law from you uh, when he was a student at, at Harvard. And uh, Professor Tribe said, with you know, with a perfectly straight face, uh, yes, I, I don't think he got much out of it. <laughs> and it reminded me that back in, you know, in the, in the late 70s, originalism or the, the notion that you go back to the original intent of the U.S. Constitution in order to ter- determine how to organize really American society in the 20th and 21st century was laughable. I mean, it was so far from any kind of a mainstream uh, approach to constitutional interpretation that, you know, it was hard, very hard to take it seriously. Now it's everywhere. And I guess we all thank, can thank Justice Scalia for that. Yeah, yes or curse him, depending on your point of view. But it's nuts. I mean, California, you know, what would Benjamin Franklin have thought about California if he'd known, you know, there was even a a landmass out there? (laughs) Garland at least is doing something when it comes to the the gerrymandering, apparently. But I I do have to quote from a piece in The Economist from a couple weeks ago, was taking a look at our attorney general, who did did not make it in the Supreme Court, thanks to the, the actions of Mitch McConnell. But uh, The Economist said, whether it presages the charges against Mr. Trump and his associates that some Democrats crave is unclear, there are no signs the Justice Department is investigating them. But it might yet. Or maybe it sees no cause to. The First Amendment is exceptionally accommodating, notes Benjamin Witts of the Brookings Institute. You can give a speech inviting people to riot and keep your hands clean. And I have to stop and say, just, just a minute here. I mean... Obviously, Trump's actions on January 6th involve criminality. You cannot incite a riot. I'm not a lawyer, but I know this idea of clear and present danger and, and like, you, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, etc. There's limits to free speech, and Trump has to be seen as being beyond normal limits of First Amendment. You know, I had a feeling you might ask about this. I'll read you the relevant uh, criminal law section. Okay. Whoever incites, sets foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. That last uh, clause is the one that uh, some people are suggesting could 
uh, bar some members of Congress from running for office or holding office, disable them. Even bigger gain than that, Politico is is saying, Bruce Ackerman and Gerald Magliocca, I guess it's pronounced, said they that uh, Trump's running in 2024 provokes a genuine constitutional crisis because of what they're saying is the disqualification clause in the 14th Amendment expressly, expressly barring any person from holding office if he engaged in insurrection. Bam! Yep, the hiccup... The hiccup there is going to be defining insurrection. That'll be the legal question. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it'll take 10 years to litigate it, and by that, Trump will have won and be out of office. So, <laughs> you know, Or maybe he'll be in jail before. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I would like to think, and again, this sort of goes back to my chagrin at my own uh, legal system. Um, I would like to think that we could move sufficiently quickly in a lot of these areas in, in a way that it that, that the, the remedy was meaningful. Um, you know, back when with Bush v. Gore, there was tr- a tremendous amount of litigation that occurred in a very short period of yes. time, culminated in a Supreme Court ruling, um, and everything stayed on track to to put a new president in place uh, when, when it was supposed to happen. Um, and I understand, and everyone needs to understand, of course, the criminal justice system uh, moves more slowly because it has to be deliberate if you're going to take away somebody's uh, freedom. Um, you know, you, you don't do that lightly, and, and it's important to respect all of the due process of law that's, that's, that's afforded every American citizen. On the other hand, um, when you get this sort of systematic, you know, no, I'm not going to comply with this subpoena, no, I'm not going to comply with that subpoena, uh, you know, members of Congress wringing their hands thinking, gee whiz, should we even try to subpoena him because we know it's going to take too long um, and the public's going to lose interest and so on and so forth. That's a prescription for the for the for the end of the rule of law with respect to people who can get away with it. We we just can't let that happen. I mean, you just cannot let that happen. Well, the, can the House panel that's investigating the, the, the January sixth insurrection, uh, they I guess can can recommend the Justice Department bring criminal charges against Donald Trump. Is that? Yeah, they could do a referral, right? You know, it's entirely possible. I don't I don't eliminate entirely the. The notion that that there's something going on at, at Merrick Garland's Department of Justice with respect to Trump, Congress could do a criminal referral, um, and if if the, but if they have to start from scratch, then that would mean that the Justice Department would essentially be starting with whatever the the committee gave them, and then you know trying from that point to see whether they whether there was a case to be built on criminal wrongdoing relating to what uh, Trump did. It's it's not inconceivable, but Remember too, you get if you get too close to the, let's say, middle of 2023, then you're in that in that place where James Comey found himself. Where, uh, gee whiz, uh, if I have an ongoing investigation relating to someone who's running for president, you know the, the typical Department of Justice handbook principles, policies, whatever you want to call them, say I I shouldn't really do say or do anything because I don't want to affect the out, outcome of a Democratic election. The clock is ticking, and and that's the thing. You know, you you do get the feeling at this point that Trump and his allies are just they're just trying to run out the clock at this point. That the people in Congress are trying to, you know, members of Congress that are stonewalling the committee are trying to run out the clock, hoping that in November 22 it'll be a Republican majority and the January 6 committee will, you know, whatever it does will be a distant memory. And that's only nine months away. Yep. 
I, I will say this. I think that the committee is going to complete enough of its work. You know, they've talked to over 500 witnesses. I'm sure you've seen the news reports. Mm-hmm. Um, 500 witnesses, including some pretty important ones. They've talked to Bill Barr. They've talked to Chris Miller, who was the acting uh, Secretary of Defense on January 6th. They've talked to a lot of people who were in a position to be around others and know what others who are now stonewalling the committee uh, were saying and doing at the time. And I think that committee is going to come out with a significant and, I think, shocking report. Now, whether anyone cares is going to be a different question, because if all of the news is going to be about you know, Biden's inability to tame inflation and Biden's inability to tame the pandemic and right. other problems that p- people think are more important uh, than the survival of democracy, then it's going to land uh, with a thud. The Mueller report, too. When a future generation of historians gonna, goes back to look at the Mueller report, they're going to ask one really simple question, uh, and that is, why was Trump not impeached? Right. There's just no question about that in my mind. Uh, but if you ask people now, they say, oh, yeah, that never went anywhere. Yeah, Bill Barr came forward and said it didn't mean much. He, That's right. He, yep. And everybody yep. went, oh, okay, I guess we're okay then. Yeah, you know, you can't read it yourself for a couple more, for two or three more weeks. But, you know, you can trust me on this one. Exactly, right? exactly. Well, Merrick Garland has at least char- brought some charges against these Oath Keepers, one of the worst groups that was part of the insurrection. And, and I know a lot of hair-raising things keep coming forth about Trump wanting to impeach pound all the uh, the voting machines and all sorts of crazy Department things. Department of Defense. Yeah, yeah they were, Department of Defense. That's right. Yep. DOD, right. The president was going to impound the voting machines. He had a lot of crazy things ready to roll that fortunately did not go forward. But if he's president again, well. All bets are off, right? All bets I are mean, off. The, the, first, the first thing that happens on day one is about 100 pardons, at least. <laughs> yeah. And then on day two, you'll have another 1,000 pardons. The first 100 is going to be his close associates. Right. and himself and his family. And then the, the next is going to be, he's already told us, right, the January 6th uh, right. rioters right, who right. are in prison. Um, although he's, he, 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 he said he, he wants, if only, if they're, unless, only if they're not treated fairly before then, whatever that means. But, um, you know, it's... Only it's, at the Atlantic. Know, the Atlantic pointed out that, you know, that, that when he was elected the first time, he did surround himself with some Washington establishment people, but uh, you know all bets are off the next administration. That'll be loyalists top to bottom. Well, he was already doing it towards the end of his administration. Yes. You know. Yes. Uh, the de- Secretary of Defense uh, left. Yes. Was fired. I mean, for the last several months of his administration, um, that's what was happening across across the government. And in, in the wake of Trump having his megaphone somewhat taken away, he's 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 ra- he's ramping up. The rhetoric in, in what he's talking about, implying that in its racist attack on him, since I guess the women, uh, uh, some of the women looking into his antics uh, are black, he's just throwing more red meat to his base right now, and, and people are noticing it and getting a little concerned about some of the violence in the rhetoric. That's right. And you know, with Trump, it's always in plain sight. It's always right there, except when it isn't. And that's what's interesting now is some of the things we're learning about what was not in plain sight. It's like the iceberg, you know, it looks really big, but boy, go below and it's even worse. Well, we need to have you come back in a, in, in a month or two, and because this is gradually moving toward the election, and, and we need to see some things happen if we're going to, I think, save the democracy. Not to sound like Trump, but I think, it's, I think that's a legitimate, uh, legitimate concern on people's part. Anything you want to close off with today, what we should be doing in the immediate future? 
pay attention. I would just tell people to pay attention. You know, it's very difficult when you're looking at uh, at your everyday life and, and concerns about COVID and concerns about the economy and inflation and everything else. But try to make a little bit of time to pay attention to the to the fate of democracy because the lives the lives of your your children and grandchildren and generations to come are gonna are gonna gonna look back and see what exactly you were doing during this period um, to help save it. Look at people like uh, you know here in California. There's uh, the congressman voted to impeach, and he's under yep. he's under great stress right now. And he's he's right. he's sort of an arch conservative. But I thought I guess I could I guess I could contribute to his reelection campaign. Well. To just pay attention. That's all I could say. Pay attention. Well, we, we shall do that. I hope all of our Great. listeners will. And I hope that in the seven or eight weeks from now, we can bring you back on to see how we're progressing. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Doug. Stephen J. Harper, thank you. Thank you again for speaking with us. And I look forward to talking again. And I got my fingers crossed about our future. Me too. Okay. Thanks. That does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We look forward to having Stephen Harper on again in the not-too-distant future. Meanwhile, pay attention.